Let's take a little trip now behind the page on this Jessica Jones series. And we need to look at uh, some major, major movements in the history of Marvel Comics. Mm. This is a milestone for us to look at. Um, We need to think about how Marvel went bankrupt in the 90s, gets bought and sold. And after that, Marvel is, is, is trying a whole bunch of big and bold new ideas um, as we as we get to the end of the nineties and the start of the two thousands, um, we we look at Marvel's competitor DC Comics. They have a really good thing going in the eighties and nineties with something called Vertigo Comics, like an imprint within DC Comics that mm. published adult mature comic books. Um, they would use. Uh, writers and artists from outside the world of superheroes um, to do horror stories and science fiction and supernatural and crime stories um, and that led to them getting things like Sandman mm. uh, Alan Moore on Swamp Thing Grant Morrison on, on Animal Man Doom Patrol like critically acclaimed series um, that they were also able to put into uh paperback collections and hardback collections which some people call graphic novels when they're being Mm. wrong (laughs) and they were able to sell those in bookshops in kind of the in in the fiction section in 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 a different way of presenting and selling comic books than had really been done in the mainstream bookshops didn't really sell comic books and there's a whole generation of kids uh, adults now that when they were younger they bought all their comics from the bookshop, Smiths, Waterstones, uh, wherever, wherever it might be. Um, and and DC were at the forefront of that because they had these mature things because they were making. I mean, Watchmen wasn't Watchmen isn't part of Vertigo, but it was one of the steps along the way to getting Vertigo mm. up and running. Yeah, they yeah. had a claim with the Dark Knight Returns. They had a claim with Watchmen, um, and then they had a claim with Alamo's, um uh, swamp thing and then they started to to move in this direction and go well what if we thanks to the wonderful incredible work of this this woman called karen berger this incre- one of the most incredibly important figures in comics and completely overlooked she was the editor at dc who launched vertigo who cultivated these relationships with a lot of these european writers that i've talked about mm. and basically funneled them into american comics to have this outsider view and outsider take on mainstream comics mm. marvel had nothing like that um until something called marvel knights came along uh-huh. this guy called joe quesada um who uh, was a outsider artist and writer who had his own very small comic book publishing company called uh, Event Comics, I think, um, and had this character called Ash. Ash was a firefighter who was also gained superpowers and became a superhero, as impervious to fire or something along those lines. And that was a, you know, he had moderate success during the superhero boom of the 90s. Mm. Um, but more importantly, he was a writer, he was an artist, he was an editor, and he was a publisher. And he was he had so many great contacts in the, in the independent comic book world that Marvel tapped Joe Quesada to, can you come into Marvel and create your own imprint within us that would essentially do what Vertigo sort of did, bring mm. these outsider artists and writers in, and we'll give them Marvel characters that aren't being used anymore and help revolutionise them and put some fresh blood into them, into things. Um, and so that's exactly what Joe Quesada did. The project was called Marvel Knights, um, and it, you know Daredevil was a completely overlooked character that no one cared about. Mm. 
he was made part of the Marvel Knights, and Joe Quesada had a relationship with Kevin Smith and brought Ooh. Kevin Smith, the filmmaker, in yeah. to write Daredevil, making it the number one comic in the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a huge get for Marvel. Um, and from that stage, you know, Grant Morrison came in to work on some on the Fantastic Four, and you know, lots of other other. Um, Mark Miller came in. Mm. Uh, no, sorry, Garth Ennis. Mark Miller didn't come in that stage, I don't think. Garth Ennis came in. You just got we- Mark Miller and Garth Ennis mixed up, and I, I think did, that's yeah. brilliant. Garth- <laughs> okay. Why is it brilliant? <laughs> because they're interchangeable. They are not. Garth Ennis is a good writer. <laughs> Okay, fair play. Sorry. Garth Dennis is brought in um, mm. to the to, to, to Marvel, and he he give, is given Punisher for the first time as part of this Marvel Knights project, and creates a, a real storm with that. Um, but these uh, Joe Quesada does so well at running Marvel Knights mm. that he becomes the editor in chief of the whole company. <laughs> like he wow. becomes the the guy creatively in charge of all of Marvel Comics. Amazing. Um, that was a because it was such a success. Mm. Now. Marvel Marvel Knights was 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 creating critically acclaimed stories and things, but they weren't they weren't re- they were pushing the boundaries on what you might call themes and tone. Okay. But they weren't necessarily doing. It was not an adult comic book. Okay. It was not like Vertigo. Vertigo um, was not part of the rest of of DC, and it didn't have a, a rating that young people could go and read it. Right. Um, so it's still being published under what's called the Comic Code Authority. Hmm. And then during this time, writer Brian Michael Bendis, who was an independent star as well, um, he came up with an idea that made Marvel want to start swearing and start shagging. Um, <laughs> so the, the Comic Code Authority is like the almost the approval, the rating system, if you will, for comic hmm. books. Um, it was so back in the 50s the comic book industry had to try and prevent the government the American government from stepping in and regulating comic book content Mm. with laws Um, we've talked a few times about there being a moral panic over comic books in the 50s horror comics crime comics they'd really um, dented the way the American public saw comic books the industry was on the verge of having you know the government regulate this is what you can and can't put in comic books it's enshrined as law we are regulating your industry um, mm. they didn't want that to happen so they created a self-regulatory body called the comic code authority the cca um and it was to prevent bloodshed and violence and sexual stories and swearing from cropping up in comic books you know on on a on a, on a newsstand alongside superman and spider-man and stuff so if it, for decades you had to have the comic code authority's stamp of approval its literal yeah. logo on the front of your on your, of your comic in order for anyone to advertise in your comic and in order for anyone to sell them in their shops like the shops would not carry an unapproved comic book and advertisers generally would not especially in the 50s 60s and mm. the, the 70s would not want to advertise in something that's not going to be sold and doesn't doesn't have an approval and isn't good for kids and stuff. Oh yeah, but by the year two thousand, they really the Comics Code Authority had 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 no power left anymore. Mm. Um, comic book shops, which had suddenly come to existence in the eighties, weren't going to stop stocking Marvel comics. Advertisers <laughs> weren't going to stop buying adverts in Amazing Spider Man because you know this company falls out with them. So 
Marvel is working along the lines of do we need a CCA anymore? Yeah. Um, yeah. And eventually what happens is they create two new lines of comic books. Um, Marvel Adventures, which features superhero stories for younger readers, mm-hmm. and then a mature adult-themed line of comics called Max. Ah. Um, Marvel Max comics carry a warning on the front cover, similar to the explicit content label you used to get on CDs back on the day. You know, <laughs> I remember those. It was the black box, and it said warning, you know. Those were content, the best albums. Those were the content, good albums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it would say that this story is intended for 18+. plus. Yeah. Now, there's not a law like there is in movies that says a, a, a young kid can't buy it, but uh, it's not prohibited by law, but... Yeah, I think you'll find that shops probably wouldn't sell them to younger kids. Mm. Um, the, the Max comics are where you'll you'll find these different types of content, and this all started because of Jessica Jones. Mm. Brian Michael Bendis submitted his script for Alias, a story about a hard drinking private investigator on the fringes of the Marvel universe. The script contained swearing drinking depictions of sex and graphic conversations about sex Mm. but it was also powerful and nuanced and layered and really exciting and thrilling it was the kind of stuff that vertigo comics have been doing for years yeah that marvel have never been able to do marvel president bill jemis who was a rebel in himself um he read that script and declared to marvel editors and bosses why can't we publish this comic and when the answer comes back, because it wouldn't get approved by the Comics Code Authority, mm. President Jemis decides to ditch the CCA altogether, launch this old adult mature line of, of, of Marvel Marvel Comics, Marvel Max, all because of how great Alias was, all because of Brian Michael Bendis' script. It changed Marvel. Um, so Alias launches under the, the Max Marvel Max comic line, the very first word that appears in the very first issue is the F word. Yay! Um, the comic also <laughs> contained uh, Luke Cage using the N word and a lot of other adult language and adult conversation. Um, Bendis's writing is brought to life um, by artist Mike Gate, Michael Gaydos. If you just take a look at some of the first two images I've sent you, Will, um, you'll be able to see uh, this this art style, which is gritty it's full of shadows and it's packed with uh regular human bodies as opposed to the impressive superhuman superhero physiques that you see in other comics the artwork is like the antithesis of a glossy mainstream superhero comic it Um, looks like something from 2000 ad you know the more serious comics strips you get in 2000 ad yeah yeah has that same feel plus you know there's there's a picture of her on the toilet and it's like yeah that's the opposite of glamorous. <laughs> very, very much. And that's yeah. really important to, to Alias. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, Will's, Will's got a full page uh, where Jessica is working through a case whilst sat on the toilet. Um, the If you take a look at some of the other two images I sent you, the, the covers of each issue hmm. are painted by an artist called David Mack, um, who did not have a lot of painted covers for independent comics for a long, long time. He's the creator behind a series called Kabuki, which was quite popular in the independent scene in the, in the 90s. And this kind of creates an impressionist artwork and collages. Um, that's what the covers are. And they're a world away from the kind of traditional comic book covers designed to draw in 
kids and teenagers which feature a fight scene or a superheroic pose or whatever. They don't look like regular comic books, do they? No, no, no. They. It reminds me, I don't know who that artist was who did Arkham Asylum and they did some um, other stuff, but we talked about that before. The irregular yeah, I got it wrong last time. Uh, it's not Bill Senkovich. It's it's somebody else, and my brain has gone on me. Um, That's fine. That's fine. Maybe you should do a COVID test. <laughs> yeah, kid- I'm kidding. It, everything about this comic book screams, yeah. this is for adults, or this very isn't for so. you, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's very mature. Very. It's not in, in the way that, you know, on the front cover there's a sex joke. Or anything, mm. but it's just sort of saying this. This so these covers look like almost you know album covers or the cover of an art book or something. The character Jessica Jones becomes a critical success, uh, a very acclaimed series. It's the talk of the industry for years to come. Originally, when 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 Bendis is creating the series, he wanted to use an existing Marvel character. He wanted to use a Spider Woman otherwise known as Jessica Drew. Spider-Woman uh-huh. was created in the 70s, yeah. been popular for a brief period of time, and then fallen out of popularity. And in the 80s, the character had stopped being a superhero altogether, stopped wearing a costume, and instead become a bounty hunter and private investigator. And that was kind of his inspiration. He liked the idea of a superhero character that had fallen between the cracks of the Marvel Universe and was now on the fringes and become a PI, and he thought that was a great route. But in the end, Bendis wanted to go so far with the story in Alias and do so many different things with the character and and, and the background, intense themes, that really Marvel and its lawyers have to think about the the intellectual property that is Spider-Woman. Mm. And and the changes you're allowed to do. Yeah. Carol Danvers was in exactly the same spot, probably, as Spider-Woman throughout the 1980s and most of the 90s. Completely forgotten about. Now, someone could have come along at that stage and said, look, this character, no one's reading, you haven't published this character in ages, no one cares about the character, let me take the character and introduce this very adult background of sexual assault, let me introduce this, let me show a pitch, let me me portray the character on the toilet, let me do this, that and the other. If Marvel had done that, it would maybe make the character less attractive to eventually become a major superhero comic, uh, movie, sorry. So, Marvel lawyers at some stage have to think about the like the long term worth of an intellectual property. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So the, there are there's things you can do a lot more easily with a original created character that is intended to be mature than there is to take a character that's intended to be a superhero character that kids and teenagers like, and maybe one day be a cartoon or a comic or a TV show or whatever, and make it extra extra mature and gritty and and dark um so instead he's pushed towards creating an original character and and that's how we get jessica jones alias runs for just over two years and was truly truly groundbreaking for lots of reasons like yeah there's swearing and graphic content and mature stories but Alias's depiction of jessica is what's really groundbreaking mm. as, as as we discussed in our she-hulk episode Superhero comics have a long history of displaying female characters for the male gaze and objectifying them in their presentation. 
you just have to look at that at that panel of that page of Jessica on the loo on the toilet. <laughs> like she's a lead character that books that trend hugely. Yeah, Jessica Jones is not presented in a revealing costume. She wears regular human clothes. Mm. Early issues depict her, as you said, on the on the toilet. Like she's she, and yet she's not presented in a sexualized manner. No, and yet she's not an asexual character. Mm. Jessica's sexuality and her sexual misadventures and ha- what that means for her personal life and her mental health are key parts of the Alias series. So her sexuality is baked into the series, but she's not, and they are not presented in a way that objectifies her. Mm. That was kind of really groundbreaking. Um, and Jessica is, is is depicted as you know you've not had a Marvel lead character that's that's clearly depressed that is suffering from PTSD of some description. Although I don't know if PTSD was as much in the vocabulary at the time as it is kind of in 2015. Mm. But but she's presented and depicted as a person that suffered great abuse and trauma, not something you get a lot of at all in mainstream comics. And as someone that's been let down, like in the great noir tradition, we see that how the institutions of the Marvel Universe have completely failed Jessica. Um, but in Alias, it's that they are rife with sexism towards her. And they're part that, that sexism is part of the reason why she has become so ostracized, so cynical, and so jaded. Um, it's like a major, major groundbreaking work. The After 28 issues, two and a bit years... Um, Bendis and Marvel decide that Jessica Jones is such a great character, they want to actually do more with her. Bendis wants to take her and use her in different ways as part of the... Like, they want to involve her more in the Marvel Universe. But they also feel that characters like Spider-Man do not belong in a comic as edgy as Alias. So after Mm. resolving a lot of Jerrica's personal issues, kind of almost, you might say, closing out the first arc of her character in those two and a bit years, Alias is cancelled, shut down. Well, not cancelled, but it comes to its end. They just end it. Issue 28 is the last issue. And Bendis launches a new comic that moves Jessica from the fringes of the Marvel Universe, like to slap bang in the middle. It's called The Pulse. And it continues the Jessica Jones story as she stops being a private investigator and gets hired by J. Jonah Jameson to Ooh. become the Daily Bugle's lead investigator on superhuman events. Oh, nice. So she works with the journalists of the Daily Bugle to cover the mm. uh, the news stories in the superhero kind of community because she's got all these connections. The, the first story arc sees Jessica interacting with Spider-Man and she plays an integral role in the Bugle exposing the Green Goblin's real identity that he's Norman Osborn and putting Norman Osborn behind bars for the very first time in the history of of, of comic books like never before had Norman Osborn gone to prison and Mm. been exposed publicly Um, and the Pulse would then follow Jessica through like the major Marvel events of the time like the Secret War the House of M event the end of the Avengers by the time the Pulse ended its run in 2006, Jessica had become a major supporting cast member in the new Avengers um, mm. and would become more and more involved in major Marvel stories throughout the, the, the 2000s. Um, Ned Bowman of The Guardian wrote of Jessica Jones in this period of time, you might feel that if you want to see female characters treated with any respect by the creators, the male-dominated world of superhero comics is just not for you. 
but there are exceptions. Perhaps the greatest female superhero of recent years is Brian Michael Bendis' Jessica Jones. For more than 40 issues, Bendis took us inside her head, creating one of the bravest, wittiest, and most sensitive portraits of a female character that superhero comics have ever seen. Plus, she had a realistic body and didn't try to battle evil in a gold bikini and stiletto heels. <laughs> and I think that part is just as important as everything else, the trauma in the background and everything. The presentation of Jessica as a realistic person is a lot more attractive to a wider spectrum of the audience. Thanks for joining us as we revisit some of our favourite moments from Marvel vs. Marvel. Don't forget our full-length episodes are jam-packed with hours of Marvel trivia, behind-the-page, behind-the-scenes, and comic book Marvel history. 